Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Marsha Page, the co-founder and executive chair of Varday Partners and founder and CEO of Empowered Capital. Varday is a 30-year-old, $13 billion leading global alternatives firm specializing in credit. 
Empowered came out of Marsh's personal investing and focuses on accelerating equity for best-in-class female and underrepresented talent through capital, commitment, and connections. Marsha is one of the few women to have founded and scaled an alternatives firm over three decades. Our conversation spans Marsha's extensive career. We discuss her Minnesota roots, early days at Cargill, founding and scaling of Varday, value investing, and transition of leadership at the firm. We then turn to the latest phase in Marsha's career at Empowered Capital and her efforts to address the industry's diversity gap. Before we get going, the last episode of Season 3 of Private Equity Deals airs this week. It's a messy, dirty situation, but not in the way a dealmaker might think. Twin brothers Chris and Rob Mahalik join me to discuss Kinderhook Industries' carve-out of the environmental services divisions of two publicly traded companies to create ironclad environmental services. Yeah, it's that kind of messy. Taking out the trash. Have a listen to hear about a business with all the characteristics that make for a great buyout, including getting down and dirty in ways that don't smell great to most. Thanks so much for spreading the word about the end of season three of Private Equity Deals. Please enjoy my conversation with Marsha Page. Marsha, great to see you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Why don't you take me all the way back to your first steps into the markets? I've got a bit of a non-traditional background, and I have to take a step all the way back to my hometown of Olivia, Minnesota. Population 2,500, about 100 miles west of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and self-proclaimed corn capital of the world. Small town, big ambitions, and a family structure that was very entrepreneurial and leadership-oriented. Really, it started around 10 years old when I started working with my dad in his drugstore. He was a pharmacist in this small town, and I spent most of my evenings and weekends with my father in that drugstore just absorbing everything about the business with my siblings. We discussed that over meals, and he helped me really appreciate the measurability of business, but also the importance of exceptional customer service. My mom was her own force of nature, no limits thinking, happy to challenge the status quo. First woman mayor in Olivia when I was in high school, strategic, creative, visionary, So when I went to college at Gustavus Adolphus College, I was completely convinced that I was going to be a pharmacist and go back to Olivia and join my father. I went to a liberal arts school and ran into a wrestling match with organic chemistry and completely lost. I had no idea what was (laughs) happening in that class. Literally, literally had no idea, Ted. At the same time, I took a math of finance class from one of the math professors there and really delved into understanding the math behind present value and future value, internal rates of return, and then the applicability to business, to investing, even to personal life. And I was completely hooked. That became really my journey to go into economics and finance. I graduated in 1982, so now I'm totally dating myself, but an environment with very high inflation, recessionary and not a ton of jobs. So I had pretty slim pickings coming out in 1982 and decided to just go right to the University of Minnesota for my MBA. Obviously, that would be difficult to do today. When I graduated, I was persuaded 
by Bob Lumpkins, who ultimately became vice chair at Cargill to join Cargill. I started as a financial analyst, and Bob really became a sponsor for me in that organization. And I use the word sponsor very intentionally. He wasn't a mentor. He was somebody who put chits on me. He gave me visibility to senior leadership and put lots of challenging projects in front of me. On a Friday afternoon, he called me. He said, hey, Marsha, do you know what a high-yield bond is? And I said, Bob, yeah, I kind of hedged my bets. I think so. Send it over. And of course, it was paper at the time. So this huge stack of paper shows up on my desk on a Friday afternoon. And I frantically work on it over the course of the weekend and come in Monday morning and present this to Bob Lumpkins and three other colleagues at the time. They went out on my 25-year-old recommendation and bought $5 million of high-yield bonds from what was then Drexel Burnham Lambert. As an aside, I don't remember the actual credit, but I remember it was not a particularly appealing (laughs) bond structure in that it was an increasing rate note that could only go to par and had all the downside. So I still remember the very first bond that was bought. Importantly, that is how I got into finance because they asked me at that point to become, in effect, a credit analyst on what was a new developing trading desk at Cargill in and around financial instruments. That is where my training and my love for investing really began. What was the Cargill organization at the time? Cargill is a massive global agricultural business. I was the beneficiary of innovation and an entrepreneurial view of how they wanted to tackle the financial markets. So they basically were taking some of their best merchants of grain, think of wheat and bean and corn traders, who had phenomenal global experience in arbitrage and cash and futures and options and understanding how to trade on the world stage. And they ported them over to the steps that was going to start, in effect, bringing those arbitrage skills to the financial markets, particularly in the treasury bond markets and the foreign exchange markets. Here I was as this young credit analyst on this basically developing group of traders that was kind of in effect a quasi-treasury function for Cargill at the time. I had the opportunity to learn relative value skills, trading capabilities from some of the best merchants. Cargill was also committing serious sums of capital. Wall Street definitely took notice (laughs) of what was happening. Even though it was a relatively young part of Cargill, there was an enormous amount of credibility and an integrity in the way that the business was done that caused a lot of people to take notice. What was that training ground like for you and the people around you? One of the things that I think is remarkable about that period of time is that really we were all committing capital. So we were in a position to be able to commit capital on our own up to certain limits. So there was this concept of limits, basically, that created the way that we kind of went about the business. But they were pretty generous, especially for a bunch of young folks just starting out in the business. They were really flexible in moving past the treasury markets and into more credit-related pieces. So I personally had the opportunity to invest and trade in high-yield bonds, municipal bonds, preferred stocks, bankrupt situations. I invested on behalf of the, in effect, the balance sheet at Cargill, but also on behalf of their insurance companies and had exposure to Cargill's pension plan at the time. 
So this really became a hub of uh, financial expertise and investing capabilities for the firm very broadly. How did Cargill think about what it was trying to achieve with the capital? It was very much envisioned early as kind of a quasi-treasury function, really built on arbitrage that was cash, futures, and options. So even much of what I was doing was really capital structure arbitrage related. So in effect, taking more senior long positions and shorting more subordinated parts of the capital structure and really playing out pricing disparities, bringing an arbitrage approach from a global standpoint to the capabilities. As business went on, they increasingly took on additional kind of credit-related risk. That's where I had come in, in bringing in a high-yield bond expertise and being able to trade in riskier parts of capital structures. So you had a window from those mid-80s till, let's say, the late-80s of the real growth of that high-yield market. How did the functions that you took on at Cargill evolve over that period of time? It was early days in the high-yield market, for sure. Aside from kind of the functional areas that I was involved in, one of the things that was very clear during those Cargill days and learning in and around the business was the mantra that your word is your bond. So there was an enormous amount of integrity that was being brought to all of these component pieces. I distinctly remember a moment where there was a counterparty cut off from trading by virtue of not operating with that level of integrity in what was a very much a developing market. So it was not just the high yield bond market, but a willingness to kind of look at merchant banking type of transactions. So it was just this continued willingness to innovate and look at gaps in the market and be quite opportunistic in how that capital was deployed. What were some of those innovations over the course of your time just at Cargill? It was probably investing in bankrupt situations. Actually, it was exemplified by Texaco filing for bankruptcy in 1987. It was a very short-lived bankruptcy. It was really not a fundamental credit problem, but more of a litigation issue. I just remember very distinctly the rapid work that was done in and around enterprise value, but more importantly, an understanding of why there was motivated selling by virtue of the downgrade of a money good credit. There was motivated selling in the market. Prices were dropping quite rapidly. Cargill came in and had a bid brought liquidity and brought a lot of dry powder. So they just had this willingness to go into dislocated markets, be able to assess value quickly, and be prepared to have a bid. It's a very powerful early lesson in my career. How did that path of cargo take you to starting Barday? Well, there's an intermediate step there, Ted. <laughs> and that is my first high-yield bond that I pitched to Bob Lumpkins and three others. Those three individuals, Dick Emmerich, John Brandenburg, and Mike Fry, left Cargill in 1988 to start their own hedge fund. At the time, it was called EBF and Associates. Now it's called Merced Partners. Maybe it's that entrepreneurial DNA. I put up my hand and said, I would really like to join this firm. They really were doing a hedge fund strategy around global arbitrage. 
My area that I was going to focus on was really credit, capital structure, arbitrage. I had the benefit of being really in the early days when hedge funds were kind of a new concept and really a cottage industry and started trading on behalf of their very first fund. When RJR was acquired by KKR, literally one of the largest LBOs at the time, they had one of the most complex capital structures that I'd ever seen. It was filled with subordinated debt and paying kind bonds. It was a huge structure and a relatively small market. And there were just pricing dislocations across that capital structure continuously. And I spent the better part of my first year at EBF basically trading that capital structure. Then it moved to bank debt. Back in the day, bank debt was just bespoke documentation, right? I distinctly remember trading bank debt in a company called Revco, which is a defaulted drugstore chain. Bought it at about 50 cents on the dollar, went to a bank debt meeting. I believe it was in LA. Everybody at that table was, why is this person here from Minneapolis? And what's a hedge fund doing in our room? When I told them that we had bought it in the secondary market at 50 cents on the dollar, you could literally hear a pin drop. The market didn't even have an appreciation that there was a secondary market developing in assets like bank debt. And when the default rate really started to pick up in 1990, EBF started a fund called Merced that I ultimately ran and that was dedicated to distressed debt investing. That is really how I got into the distressed debt investing business. I basically ran that portfolio from kind of cradle to grave, underwriting to exits. I ran the prime broker, sized the positions, hedged the foreign exchange risk, and actually calculated the monthly returns. The intermediate step was really in conjunction with really running a distressed debt fund and being exposed to all of parts of the market. What was it that led you to leave Merced to form Varday? Fundamentally, had the distinct privilege of being exposed to running a full portfolio, but also to being in fundraising discussions with existing and or potential investors who obviously were they themselves also early and identifying this as an opportunity. It was really a combination of seeing the tailwinds in, first of all, total returns, the love of being on the line from a PL standpoint, personally, <laughs> understanding all of the fund related pieces, but also an appreciation that we were starting to see something that was moving from a nascent, more cottage driven industry into something that was going to be much more substantial, and that there were some tailwinds for that opportunity set from a fundraising standpoint. It was probably my entrepreneurial drive. I just became very resolved that I wanted to start a new firm and I wanted it to reflect a culture that I could be really proud of and that would ultimately reflect my values. When you launched with your partners, what did you see as the mandate for Varday? Originally, I was going to do this on my own. <laughs> Midway through 1993, a former colleague of mine had gotten wind that I was looking at doing something. George Hicks and Greg McMillan had stayed at 
Cargill in the intervening five years while I had been over at Merced Partners on the more liquid traded side of the businesses. They had been very instrumental in the development of Cargill's purchase of those RTC assets, non-performing and sub-performing loan portfolios. So when we got together in the middle of 1993, the idea really was that what if we actually brought our capabilities together in a new fund structure and that we brought a relative value sensibility from liquid traded strategies that I was particularly strong in all the way to the illiquid part of these loan portfolios and brought those together in a single structure. We see that all over the place in the market now, but at the time, that was an innovation in the market. We ultimately decided that we would be much stronger and have a stronger value proposition for the market by bringing our forces together, our complementary skill sets, bringing all of the capabilities across a much wider range of assets as a offering in the marketplace. After working at Cargill and Merced, I'm really curious when you went to start Varde, how you thought about the culture of the organization based on what you learned at those two stops. It's a really good question because George and Greg and I gave that a lot of thought. Before we signed our two-page term sheet, which by the way, it'll have been 30 years this November 2nd that we signed this term sheet that lasted us for about five years, we really wanted to think about how we were going to work together. So we'd already established that we had complementary skill sets from liquid to illiquid strategies. George is an attorney by background. He brought that capability in bankruptcy and restructuring skills. But we also did our Myers-Briggs. We understood our personality types, how that influenced our decision-making approaches. We brought in a similar set of values. And importantly, we were really looking to continue with that ethical culture that we'd been involved in, but one that was very much collegial and that was the opposite of call it an individual star culture. That manifested itself in a variety of ways. When we named the firm, Varde is the Swedish word for value, we intentionally avoided using our names specifically in the business to avoid the cult of personality that can be associated with this business. The Swedish word for value also tied very much into our value investing philosophy. We really saw ourselves as fundamental value investors and looking to create investments at a discount to intrinsic value, catalysts for that value recognition, and ways to unlock and create that value. The other way that it manifested itself, it wasn't like we dictated the culture from day one. But we were very focused on the quality of how we were going to build the business from a talent point of view. So as we started building the business, certainly we had classic interviews and so forth. Very early on, we brought a very rigorous pre-hire assessment that assessed critical thinking skills, drive for excellence, integrity, their personality types but importantly, how they wanted to operate in an environment where the focus was on team success and not a star culture or personal glory. I think we attracted talent that liked that rigor, that put an emphasis on people and made excellence more than lip service. 
I think the culture of our day really ultimately ended up being very much a function of the rigor that we put into our talent management process and some of those very early decisions we made as a business proposition amongst the three of us. In the markets you're participating in, say high yield and distressed among others, tend to have a reputation of being sharp elbowed, can be zero sum games at times. And your home in Minnesota doesn't usually have that same reputation. Love to hear how that comes together. Oh, it's such a good question. Certainly, particularly in the 80s and 90s, I didn't personally always appreciate how business got done. I've often said that someday I'm going to have a whole wall of all the rogues characters that I've come across in my career. There were incredible periods of time, especially because we were in relatively illiquid markets over the counter where you had decisions where there was a ton of gray area, differences in the amount and shared quality of information, and navigating that in a very sharp-elbowed environment was something that you get good at, I guess. It becomes a practice skill. I haven't shared this with too many people, but my nickname was the Velvet Hammer. (laughs) People wouldn't see it coming. (laughs) But if you'd done your homework and you had a view on enterprise value and you knew what you were willing to pay for something and you were in a position to commit capital, that tended to go a long way in being able to operate through the system. I will tell you, though, there were entire credits that I avoided through my entire career. You knew that they were coming in terms of how they were going to handle relationships, being overly litigious in the process, and or who you would partner with. Rarely were you owned the entire capital structure. In those early days, the distressed debt community was relatively small. You knew who operated with integrity and you sought ways to be in partnership in those parts of the capital structure with those groups. When we started Varday, many of those early relationships and other distressed debt investors were some of our very first investors. Those would be names that you'd recognize as well. Like anything, it was a combination of skills. It was a combination of operating with integrity, knowing who your partners were, and in some cases, simply just avoiding credits that you knew were going to be, by nature of the participants, overly difficult and litigious, which basically meant you were going to be extended from a time frame. So if you look out now over the years of your involvement, I'd love to hear a little bit of the story of how you built and scaled the organization? It has really been fun. We basically have had this decades-long tailwind moving from what has been very much a cottage industry to something institutional industry and private alternatives. There have been a couple specific areas that were very influential to me in thinking about it from a business building standpoint. One was our decision to make our first big geographic move. This was around 2005 to 2006. One of our business partners, Jason Spath, had gone to London and in effect started to establish our capability across our illiquid strategies in London and across the European continent. 
then I moved with our entire family in 2005 to London with the idea of building out the liquid part of our capabilities in the same region. We made a strategic decision that it was important that a partner actually move into that area and have capital committing authority in the market as opposed to being a satellite, which was more typical of what we were seeing in that period of time by our peers. That lent enormous credibility to Varde's entry into that marketplace. My big project was hire a team that was going to be in place by the time I left London. 2005-2006 was a pretty frothy time in the market. It was also a pretty frothy time in individuals' minds as to their contribution that they were going to make to this effort. What was going to take a few months took nine months of interviews and conversations with folks who saw their capabilities and credit and what they expected to be paid and promoted for in conjunction with that to be beyond my wildest dreams. And particularly coming from the United States, where the sophistication in the credit markets has been very high, it was pretty easy to see through some of the statements that were being made. Until I got to a person by the name of Ilfran Carstairs, who had been on the leveraged loan desk at Deutsche Bank and ultimately became an absolutely phenomenal fit. Fast forward to today, he is Varde's current CEO and co-chief investment officer. As the business has transitioned from the original three founding partners now to the next generation of talent. So common denominator around talent and um, being patient and then working with that talent to bring them along from an investing point of view, but also understanding the business writ large and being patient and intentional in that training. The second piece that was both a very fun project, but one that I think was very instrumental in thinking about Varde was a project that we called Varde 2.0. And the 2.0 is kind of this idea of the next generation of thinking about this business as the industry was becoming more institutionalized particularly in that post-GFC period of time. It also coincided with our 20-year anniversary, so we used the 2.0 for both purposes. It was a recognition that our business was at a real inflection point, probably slightly subscale in light of the fact that the alternatives business found itself with the established firms growing at a much faster rate than newcomers, and the fact that LPs were becoming increasingly sophisticated and looking to consolidate the number of their relationships. We had a choice point to become institutional in the way we thought about our business or in effect become a quasi-family office. At that point, we made an intentional decision to build out our business and really build it into a world-class global alternative investment management firm. This meant that we moved our thinking from a distressed cyclical investing approach to value investing throughout the cycle. It meant that we extended our capabilities across geographies. We opened an office in Singapore shortly after the global financial crisis. We extended the type of assets that we considered, and then we also looked at a much wider range of return profiles. We also had to build out the infrastructure. 
I mean, regulation had also been a meaningful change in the post-GFC period of time and required an institutional quality, operational and compliance in a much more elevated way. So we invested in processes and systems. We hired our first COO. We added value-added operational capabilities for our portfolio companies. We had to come and reckon with the fact that we probably need to extend our governance and decision-making processes beyond the heads of the founding partners and really made a concerted effort to bring in the next generation of leadership, elevate their capabilities, their leadership development. All of these things happened really in and around the 2012 to 2013 period of time and became a choice point that has set the firm on a direction of highest quality, global institutional quality asset management firm. As you grew out the capabilities, the type of assets and strategies you looked at, how did that affect the construction of your portfolios? What it did really is give us an even wider range of capabilities from a relative value standpoint. So we had on-the-ground partners in Minneapolis, New York, London, Singapore, more recently Mumbai, that all had this capability of being able to look across the globe for relative value, look across various asset types, and be able to bring that lens across both liquid and illiquid strategies. So it really gave us a very unique perch as a global firm to be able to evaluate relative value. The practical effect of that is that the portfolio can ebb and flow quite a bit in terms of how and where your exposures are at any given point in time, particularly in kind of the classic flagship vehicle. So for instance, our European exposure has been as much as 50% of the overall portfolio, but in the last handful of years, our Asian exposure has increased quite dramatically. The liquid versus illiquid strategies have also ebbed and flowed. Sometimes they're 50-50 at other points in the cycle. The biggest dislocations can often happen earlier, and you're going to be all in on your liquid strategies while you wait for the illiquid markets to turn into motivated sellers that ultimately allow you to shift the portfolio to more illiquid strategies. So it ends up being a very flexible platform. The other practical reality, Ted, is that as investors look for more specific kinds of exposures, in some cases they're looking toward a flagship fund that naturally is ebbing and flowing with that relative value. In other instances, we're providing targeted exposure for individual investors who are looking for a specific asset type, a specific return profile, and or a specific geography. And by having all of these component pieces in the platform, you've got the benefit of creating the flagship that is our best judgment on relative value and or opportunities for our investors to be able to pick and choose and pinpoint their specific areas of interest. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 
36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. When you went from a centralized office to four or five different locations with senior people in each, how did you go about the process of moving from the centralized decision-making to five different regional heads who have their own portfolios because they have a sleeve, but then you also want competition for capital in your flagship? So really a combination of a much more robust investment committee process that was inclusive of everybody from all of those locations together with limits on the more liquid parts of the strategies. We have always had a very robust strategic planning process, which meant that we came together as a firm at least once a year. We rotated that across various geographies and we still continue to do that. That allows for each parts of the organization to identify their expectations for the business on a going forward basis and allow for thoughtful planning on what that would mean in terms of likely allocation across the portfolio. So with plenty of flexibility in that, you have an upfront plan that you're working around and a regular investment committee process that is bringing those individual deals for first look and final approval combined with limits on the liquid side of the business. And so were there any other key inflection points in that path? The two that I had talked about was the personal move to London, I think 2.0. The other thing I would just say is an intentional plan by each of the partners to ultimately, I'm putting air quotes around retire, because both George Hicks and I continue to be co-chairs at Varday all these years later, but really being very intentional around how we transitioned the business and how we communicated that to our stakeholders, particularly our investors and other key people around the organization. It's been a very smooth transition from the founding partners to the next generation of leadership and one that required a lot of intentionality and really strong communication skills. What were the aspects of that plan that you implemented and then that worked in that transition? When we were doing Varde 2.0, it was really intended to have the basic elements that were going to allow for that transition to occur. So it was really a combination of extended governance, leadership, development, and ultimately a communication plan with our limited partners. But it also required that we elevated key people in the organization into more senior leadership roles well in advance of when those leadership transitions took place. So that by the time we got to those kind of announcements, there was a very clear sense of the next generation of leadership. 
a real practical part of that was allowing other people in the organization to have more visibility in the fundraising and business development process. One of the challenges of this business is for the first 20 years, most of our investors were exposed to George Hicks, Greg McMillan, and Marsha Page. The cumulative exposure to the founding partners was something that we had to be very deliberate about and begin to build visibility across the next generation of leadership so that there was confidence on the part of the LPs that there was not just a high quality set of talent, but that it would be handled over a multi-year period of time and that all of the operational pieces were well in place. How did you handle the transition of economics in that succession process? It's really been a tale that the founding partners have with economics basically reflecting the skin in the game for that year or for that fund. So there isn't a buyout per se for the next generation of partners, but rather a declining interest in the firm and enormous amount of skin in the game as to the underlying economics over that period of time. That's what allows economics to free up such that there's more and more economics over time that's available for the next generation of partners. Over time, our partnership has expanded from the original three to 16 today. When you started 30 years ago, there was no real thought of anybody of these businesses getting capitalized. And a lot of the way some of the other your peer organizations have transitioned are through some type of monetization event, a stake, a public offering. Curious how you thought about that over the last bunch of years. It's a really good question, Ted. When we developed how partners would retire and how new partners would come in, we did contemplate the concept of a sale of business and developed what that would look like in that event. I can tell you when we started this business personally, the concept of enterprise value was non-existent. Clearly, over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a keen development of lots of capabilities and a certain maturing and consolidation in this business, no doubt. So there is enterprise value, but we think about it in the context of how that value, in effect, is transferred amongst the partners over time. We're certainly not contemplating a change in the transition of our day. We've appreciated being an all-privately held company, but it's been very interesting to watch those developments in this marketplace. You understand why those solutions exist, because there are points in time where that transition creates liquidity challenges potentially for that next generation of leaders. I'd love to turn a little bit to some of your investment lessons over these 30 years plus of experience. What are some of the key insights that you've gleaned from what leads to success in this area of the markets? It's been the power of the platform and having capabilities across geographic areas, asset types, and various return profiles. It's having tools in the tool shed, for instance, that ability to think about relative value, but also capital structure and relative value within a capital stack. It's being deeply cognizant and having a point of view on enterprise value and where value breaks. 
there's a litany of skills that are required to be effective in this, and that is a willingness to tackle complexity. One of the things that I've observed in the marketplace is that some of these situations many investors shy away from by virtue of the complexity of the underlying situation, whether it be the valuation, the capital structure, the process of restructuring, or the nature of the characters involved (laughs) in the transaction. It is a skill set that's developed. So it requires work effort, it requires an activism, it requires a way of thinking through the whole shape of the trade, from downside to your base case to ways that you can create potential optionality. It's the valuation piece, but it's also being deeply aware of what's happening in the security selection across that capital stack. So it means getting into the details of what your rights are and how and where that's going to play and what the dynamics will be in the right structure. The other thing that might not be quite as obvious is it requires the right fund structure and investor base to have the ability to have the time to do a proper restructuring and or the staying power definitely requires the right kind of fund structure. Sometimes it's the mismatch in that funding structure against what you're trying to accomplish over a multi-year period of time that can be a challenge. The other piece is recognizing that these opportunities tend to be staged over time. Certainly, we've had periods of time where you've had very quick recoveries, and it's been a very short instance. But in most cases, it requires a patience and a willingness to wait for that motivated seller. Sometimes that can take a lot longer than you think it's going to. (laughs) As you prepared for, let's just say, stepping back to be chair, how did you think about what's become the next stage of your career? As Varde's business grew, in my view, we created a business with a really distinctive culture and one that I'm very proud. Being a woman in a male-dominated field of alternative investing actually never seemed to hinder my success, and probably because I was always in a position to be able to commit capital. But what I believe happened is I think that success perhaps led me to overlook some of the facts, challenges, and barriers around diversity in the investing business. So it really wasn't until 2016 when I moved from that intense co-CEO and co-CEO roles into my current role as executive chair now shared with George Hicks that I kind of looked around. It was the first time I had time to really look around and take stock. And I was like, where did everybody go? (laughs) How is it possible that I'm one of the few women to found an alternatives firm that has a long track record that was built to scale? This really resulted in me taking a hard look around the data in our business, both at Varde, but within the investment industry writ large. There's a ton of data out there on gender in particular, but it became pretty clear that the rate of change in financial services has been nothing short of glacial during my career, particularly among senior leadership in this business. When I looked at Varde's numbers, I also, particularly among our investment professional ranks, also noted that our numbers were really right there with the industry averages. And I personally found that a bit humbling. How is that possible given this phenomenal culture that we built and quite honestly, my own female leadership? 
So my natural inclination is to start digging into the data and really understanding why we have this conundrum of lack of senior female leadership really was influenced by a book called What Works by a Harvard professor by the name of Iris Bonet and really developed a much better understanding that there isn't a silver bullet, but rather a combination of key actions that include, of course, authentic and committed senior leadership that sets the tone at the top. You got to walk the walk. If that's not happening, this business is filled with smart people and it will be dead on arrival. The book really influenced my thinking on how you can hardwire the organizations to mitigate unconscious bias in your talent management processes from hiring to promotion so that you, amongst very small cumulative changes, create a material change in your participation from a diversity standpoint. Statistically, women tend to self-rate lower than men. So we have dropped self-ratings from our promotion process. Another small example is when you are developing your plan for a hiring approach, generally we do not launch the interview process until we have at least two diverse candidates in our pool. Statistically, there's a much higher likelihood that you'll have at least one of those candidates go to the next level of interviews than having just one candidate in that pool. It's akin to kind of the Rooney role in the NFL. So we really started building on all of these hardwired small but effective changes at Varday. I was really proud of what we had done and actively involved in all of those efforts as I, air quote, retired from Varday. People are fond of saying that culture eats strategy for lunch, but I've now suggested that culture is necessary but not even close to sufficient when it comes to achieving diversity in an organization. You need to be super, super intentional. So I basically said, okay, this has been a remarkable learning experience. We've started to implement these things at Varday. How might I influence the industry more broadly? I went out there and I met with women and men and LPs and GPs. I created convenings and ultimately kind of found myself in a position where there was a lot of agreement, but not a lot of action. So I called it being in a field of bobbleheads. I had a lot of people that were like nodding, 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 but the reality is it didn't feel like there was any commercial action that was following on the back of that. So this really caused me to step back and reflect on, wow, maybe there is an actionable commercial opportunity, investment opportunity in this space. I did two more things <laughs> and went into a second set of research with several folks at Varday as well and came to two observations. One, that there are numerous research reports that show that diverse managers generate alpha outperformance versus their non-diverse peers. So that there was a potential to create alpha by investing in diverse talent. Secondly, for me, the real clincher was a Knight Foundation report that showed that only 1.4% of $82 trillion in institutionally run assets in the United States are run by diverse-owned firms. 1.4%. Even for me in this business, it was a stunning number. 
So I personally came to the conclusion that I put my capital dislocation hat on that this was one of the most inefficient markets for capital formation that I had ever seen in my career. It was a classic dislocation opportunity combined with the opportunity to create alpha by virtue of the performance by diverse teams. This is the precursor for Empowered Capital that I decided to make a financial commitment and personally commit $75 million to invest in diverse investment talent. I brought on two people to work with me as we started, in effect, investing off of my personal balance sheet. Chrissy Pariso had been at Exelon, and Ebai Haney had previously been an investment professional at Barday. The two of them joined me, and we started making commitments. It was really at that time that we were blown away by the talent that we were seeing and the range of investment opportunities that were, in effect, kind of becoming clear to us. We went about creating a bottoms-up understanding of the actual addressable market. Interesting to me, Ted, that with all of the information that's out there in the financial markets, there wasn't a single source that identified the universe of private alternatives managers that were led by female or other underrepresented talent in this business. We basically created a bottoms-up database that was over 800 private alternatives managers. It was across a range of assets from venture capital to growth equity, private equity, opportunistic credit, and real estate strategies. We're really surprised by how deep that addressable market actually was. Now, in fairness, the average AUM across this universe is about $500 million. It's pretty small relative to most investment management firms out there. It skews a little smaller by virtue of the fact that roughly half of those funds are venture capital. But even so, these tend to be funds one, two, three, or four. They're still very much a more emergent part of the market but they are not first-time investors. These folks are coming from exceptional pedigrees from fantastic firms. There is an absolutely very interesting addressable market here. And ultimately, we decided we wanted to get more capital flowing to this talent. And that's when we decided to found Empowered Capital. The academic research you cited indicating there's alpha from diverse managers. But there's a lot of research about cognitive diversity and the benefits of that in decision-making. When you're talking about a universe of 800 managers, it feels more unlikely that 800 as a group will produce alpha. So I'm curious what you found are the determinants of the diverse managers you've chosen to invest with that are the ones you feel are more likely to add value in the future? It's absolutely the case. And certainly we are looking for that best-in-class talent across this universe. So certainly the pedigree and the type of experience and the quality of firm that these groups have been working at, learning from, and being trained in is a critical component piece. It is a trifecta if we've got somebody who's got investment expertise and has had some exposure to the operating side and the infrastructure side of their organization, and has had at least some exposure to the business development or the fundraising side. That is very, very 
attractive trifecta of skills. One of the biggest challenges is being able to have an attributable track record. There are instances where this group of talent will have an attributable track record, but clearly we want to be able to see a long and steady quality track record. In some instances, it's attributable, but other instances, we are really trying to create that from multiple sources, inclusive of understanding the investors who would have otherwise understood the underlying deal and who was responsible for that deal. We will also look to do pre-fund deals with an individual manager to, in effect, underwrite shoulder to shoulder with that manager and really see the quality of their underwriting, their ability to think through enterprise value, be through a complicated negotiation, and bring a deal to fruition. So in some cases, it's basically doing a joint underwriting with that manager to really assess their capabilities, their underwriting skills. What have you found different sitting on the other side of the table from what you have for 25 years, 30 years as a fund manager? Well, the practical reality is we both have a GP and an LP hat going, right? At Empowered Capital, we are basically making commitments as a GP through three transaction types. So pre-fund direct deals, fund commitments, but also co-invests as well as what we call GP structured partnerships. We're investors full on. We have to be out in the fundraising markets ourselves. <laughs> it really goes to assessing the quality of that investing talent, that underlying track record, relying heavily on deep diligence in terms of the quality of that track record and deep reference checking. It's not like we're coming in and have a deep understanding of every single one of these individual investing strategies. So it's being clear about what the universe that we're operating against, classic benchmarking against all talent, to be honest, and expecting a track record that's going to hold up against all of the peer firms out there. And then recognizing that this talent has probably had slightly different challenges in getting to the point of being able to start and launch their own firms. Those barriers have been somewhat structural in nature, but they're also been the function of unconscious bias. So this group of folks generally has statistically been promoted more slowly. They probably have been paid less statistically and are not necessarily as part of a privileged network. So we're very conscious of the different barriers So recognizing that there is a deep need for liquid capital and a willingness on our part to basically be provisioning in our GP structured partnerships, a combination of working capital, a fund one commitment together with strategic support. So we recognize that somebody's coming with a very strong investment thesis, but are not necessarily going to be fully formed in terms of all the operational and business development sides of their business. So I think it's also bringing a willingness to think about how to bring the best strategic support to these managers 
to help fill in the gaps on the non-investing side and to put them in a position to be on their best front foot so when they are in an institutional quality conversation with an investor, that they are bringing their best foot forward together with our capital commitments and strategic support. If you're helping someone with their operations, there's a way of doing operations they may not have been exposed to you can help them with. When you're talking about a network that some of these people may not have had, that's much harder to figure out how do you help. So how do you think about that type of strategic support with the goal of not just committing the capital so they have a chance, but helping them succeed? It's a really good question. And in fact, there are some great programs out there that provide, I'd call it the basic playbook. So we've deliberately sought to do much more of a consultative approach really across what we call three pillars. So operational infrastructure, the business development, as well as talent. And the way we're delivering it really is kind of multifold. So we've got that expertise at Empowered Capital. As part of the founding of Empowered Capital, I also affiliated with Varday Partners. Varday also brings a ton of subject matter expertise to bear on those conversations that are quite bespoke and what the manager needs at a given point in time. The other thing that we've done is we've created a lot of external relationships with vendors and outside providers across a range of capabilities that will often extend the pricing and their expertise to these managers. So we are really bringing a multifaceted and very bespoke and consultative approach to that manager depending on what they need. You can imagine if they're in an institutional conversation with an LP, they're reluctant to be a bit vulnerable on the areas they're not necessarily have been exposed to in their prior work experience. So again, they're bringing exceptional investment experience to bear, but we're really looking to provide support across those non-investing sides in a very sophisticated way and that's relevant to what they're looking for and when they need it. As you look five or 10 years out from here, what would denote Empowered to be a success for you? I would love to believe that we're going to move that 1.4% number, Ted, but it is an $82 trillion denominator. (laughs) So it's not an easily moved number. The way I'm personally thinking about this is recognizing that this cannot be a fund one and done. It has to be a long-term commitment and take a long arc to this business. So that's the first starting point is taking a long view on this. But I'd like to believe that we're bringing structured solutions to these managers that actually is helping shape the market and ultimately expand the market for diverse talent. So success to me is that we've actually shaped the market. I've been in nascent markets before. This one is a relatively nascent market. I can see how it can play out over time, how we can help launch these firms, how we can help scale them, but ultimately how we can create a market for diverse talent in starting their own firms, launching and scaling their businesses. So to me, success would be that we actually continue to take a leading role, our thought leadership and what we're actually doing in terms of capital commitment and strategic support shapes the market and creates something that people have never seen before. I want to jump into the closing questions. Before I do, what I'd love you to do is to pick out one or two people over the course of your career. and some story or anecdote that you learned a key lesson from? 
Bob Lumpkins, the person that really hired me at Cargill, still a friend and mentor today, but probably gave me the toughest feedback that I've ever experienced in my life, <laughs> literally to the point of tears. I was presenting a credit and he stopped me midway and said, I don't think you're as well prepared or understanding what's happening in the underlying fundamentals of this company. And when you're ready, we can come back and have this conversation. It's important to provide feedback. It's important to receive it. It's important to have an external mirror on who you are. I trusted his advice. So it's the importance of an external mirror. Any others? This would be a group of people. In the early days of the distressed debt business, there really was an openness to sharing information and thinking around valuations and opportunities in the market. And whether it was Wall Street or other peers at that period of time, I learned the business from that group of people, really. And it was a really fun period of time and one that was interesting, but highly developmental. And it really was a combination of a core group of people where we learned from each other. Who were some of the people that you learned the most from? I learned a lot from people like Mark Lazary and Bruce Karsh. We basically are peers in the business. They have built phenomenal organizations. I still consider them friends today, but we were really all in it together back in the day. What a remarkable group of talent that assembled in or around these opportunity sets in that period of time. All right, Marsha, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love to be active. Every day I enjoy getting outside and moving. I don't care if it's biking, walking. My running days might be on their last legs. If I can combine that with travel, with people that I love to be with, whether it's family or friends, that's phenomenal. I just got back from a bike trip with two of my three daughters just about a week ago. It's absolutely my favorite thing to do. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? Probably that I was a music minor. <laughs> so I play the piano. What's your biggest pet peeve? Arrogance, hands down. My subline in that is that anybody who's worked for me or works with me knows that I expect that people underpromise and overdeliver. So when I see folks that are prone to overpromising and underdelivering, it's to me another element of arrogance and it makes me crazy. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I've already mentioned Bob Lumpkin, so he already has gotten status, but of course, my co-founding partners of our day, George Hicks and Greg McMillan, we were much better as a combined group, and we are still friends today. What's been the happiest moment of your professional life so far? It's launching firms. <laughs> launching Varday, launching Empowered Capital. I love the business building process and working shoulder to shoulder with incredible talent as we look to build something. What's the best advice you've ever received? When I worked with my dad in the drugstore, he was very fond of saying, Marsha, keep your head up. 
And he meant it both literally and figuratively. He didn't want me looking down when there might be a customer out there that needed help and that you would go out and actually help that customer. But he meant it figuratively. I've taken that very seriously. Always look for opportunities, take action, and embrace them. Okay, Marsha, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? At the end of 2011, I was at a pretty low point. Uh, we had been fundraising relentlessly in the post-GFC period of time. And 2011 was a particularly difficult year. If you might remember, we were looking to the abyss as to whether the euro was going to completely crash, and we had significant exposure in Europe. It was the end of the year, and my mom said to me, you know, I think you could really use a coach <laughs> and some feedback. This coach gathered verbatim feedback from colleagues at Varday together with some friends and family. While there was some really nice feedback in there, the practical reality is there was one piece of feedback that has stuck with me ever since that, and that was that folks wanted to be even more courageous. They would observe that I had something to say and that I might be a bit reticent to actually share it. I wish I'd known that earlier, twofold. One, it's caused me to be even more courageous in what I'm prepared to say and when. But secondly, that people observe what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're not doing, and what you're not saying. You, somewhere along the way, become a role model, and that it's very important that you be a good representation of a role model for the people around you. Don't hold back. How do you balance that with the idea that in good decision-making, often the most senior person infects the other people with their views if they don't hold back too early on? I really try to be respectful of the room as much as possible, let other people do the talking first, because I've seen it a thousand times, if not more, that the senior person says something and the room just goes completely quiet. Whatever opposing views, depending on the culture of the firm, never quite rise to the occasion. I relish varied perspectives and people know that about me. It's a combination of people knowing that I want to hear dissenting points of view and generally letting other people speak first before I infect the room. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Marcia, thanks so much for sharing this incredible story. It's my pleasure, Ted. Thank you very much. I really appreciate all the questions. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time.